We're going to uh, take our uh, scripture this morning and turn to Psalm 42, the 42nd Psalm. And we, before we go any further with the word, I'd like to take a moment and just pray together again. Would you join me? O oh Lord, please come by this word to us with your healing hand, your strengthening arm. Show us Christ. We pray that you would give strength to the weak knees and make straight the crooked paths by these words. Give us grace to persevere and that you would, in your mercies, restore us. We pray it in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 42. Let's read it together. I'll read. You follow along. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. And while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of, my, of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise you, my salvation and my God. This has become just a precious passage to me, and I know to many of God's people, it has sustained, encouraged, helped many of us through our Christian lives, and I think it's because we find ourselves sometimes asking the question, that is asked three times in this chapter, verses 5 and 6 and 11. Why are you cast down? Or he speaks of his soul being cast down. Again, in chapter 43 and verse 5, again, he speaks of 
a soul that is cast down. Do you know what it's like to have a downcast soul? Maybe some of you are there right now. Maybe it's come about because of the afflictions of life. Things that are outside of you, oppressing you, coming in on top of you, and you feel as if you are being drowned under the weight of those things. Or maybe that downcast spirit has come from within. As you look inside and you see your own failures and your own inconsistencies, the good intentions and how far short you fall, and you feel that there is not any hope left. Um, Christians can have downcast souls. They are not immune. Uh, I have a biography in my office of Charles Spurgeon, and one of the chapters is called Giant Despair. Because of all of the, for all the great things about that preacher of old, uh, he did face times in his life of great depression, spiritual discouragement, uh, times when he would later on in his life have to get away from London, from the pulpit for weeks at a time just to be able to continue on going. Uh, it's not what we think of when we think of Spurgeon, but I think it's just indicative of the fact that every child of God knows what it is to have a downcast soul at times. Uh, you read the many people have been encouraged by the biography of David Brainerd, another um, well-known figure from Christian history, an early pioneer missionary to the Native Americans, uh, but who nevertheless faced uh, times of real soul downcast. Uh, when he would be alone by himself for long stretches of time wandering through the American wilderness. And uh, he told of times when he would just lie on the floor of the forest and just weep for inexplicable reasons. Um, or I think of Adoniram Judson and on the field of service, in mission work, he ended up losing, at one point in his life, pretty much everything. He lost his health, uh, he lost his freedom, he ended up being incarcerated in what they called the death house for two years, he lost all of his family, his wife, his children, he lost his church, they were scattered to the four winds, he came out, finally was released, he had nothing, he went to stay with a fellow missionary family for a period of time, and they say that he just went out into the woods, into the jungle there, and just dug a grave that would be his own grave. He was just ready for life to be done with at that point. Um, God's people, God's people even, know what it is to have a downcast soul. To know what it is to ask, as verse 5 does. Why are you downcast? Why are you cast down within me? Why are you in turmoil? Has your soul ever been in turmoil? And, and I think the, the writer of this psalm was a believer. Notice verses 1 and 2. He has a soul that pants after God. This is not someone who is lost in utter godless despair. This is a, a person who... Uh, knows the beauty and the goodness of God, Jehovah, and yet he feels uh, 
uh, an oppression uh, in his soul, a distance from his God. Uh, he is, as it were, thirsty like a deer panting after the brooks of water. He's spiritually thirsty. And I've found in my Christian experience, maybe you've seen something similar, I don't know, but it, for me, I just think of my whole Christian life as being kind of in almost two states of being. One, times when I am satiated with God, when I'm enjoying Him, when I'm delighting in Him, when my soul is satisfied and, and happy in Him. And then other times when I'm thirsty for that. I want that. I'm, I'm longing for that. And, and it's just going back and forth between delighting and longing for that delight that I have tasted. And I think that's true of Christians and probably only Christians. I don't think the unawakened soul really can say, I am thirsty for God, as the psalmist here does in verse 2. My soul pants, longs for God. But a believer, a believer knows what that is. He knows what it is to have times in his life where he just, he, he, his soul, his spiritual throat is parched and he just wants another um, experience of communion with and the favor of his God upon him. He longs for that. He's waiting for that. He's hoping for that. He's He's missing that and his soul is cast down and in turmoil within him. Maybe he, it is because, as God said about his people Israel, they have left the living waters and they've gone to hew out their own cisterns that are broken and can't hold any water and they get down to the bottom of that and they're in the muck. And maybe that's partly why sometimes our souls are thirsty and our spiritual life is dry. But in any case, that is the case with the psalmist here. He's in a time of spiritual thirst. Time when God seems far away. When temptation feels particularly strong. When prayers seem like they're just bouncing off the ceiling. When the body is weary and afflicted. Just when the soul is downcast. Spiritual stomach is empty and his spiritual throat is parched. And he knows that nothing in the world satisfies but God. That he was made for communion with God. That he was made to enjoy the presence of God. And all the blessings that come from that. But now, for the time being, his God seems far away. He is cut off from the presence of God. Spurgeon himself comments about this passage so poignantly. Debarred from public worship, David was heartsick, he writes. Ease he did not seek, comfort and honor, excuse me, he did not covet, but the enjoyment of communion with God was an urgent need of his soul. He viewed it not merely as the sweetest of all luxuries, but as, as an absolute necessity, like water to a stag, like the parched traveler in the wilderness whose skin bottle is empty and who finds the wells dry. He must drink or die. He must have his God or faint. His soul, his very self, his deepest life, 
was insatiable for a sense of the divine presence. God, uh, excuse me, give him his God, and he is content as the poor deer, which at length slakes its thirst and is perfectly happy. But deny him his Lord, and his heart heaves, his bosom palpitates, his whole frame is convulsed like one who gasps for breath or pants after long running. Dear friend, dost thou know what that is by personally having felt the same? It is a sweet bitterness. The next best thing to living in light of the Lord's love is to be unhappy till we have it and to pant hourly after it. Hourly, did I say? Thirst is a perpetual appetite and not to be forgotten. And even thus, continually is the heart's longing after God. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, do you know what I mean? You know what it is to long after the Lord? Have a heart that is entirely unsatisfied with spiritual dryness? to long to have the Lord come to you with revival and renewal and the quenching of your thirst with Himself. When someone's in that condition, two questions loom large over him. And you see the psalmist asking those questions. In the end of verse 2, he asks of his own soul, when shall I come and appear before God. When shall I come and appear in the presence of God? Apparently the psalmist was kept from the temple, the tabernacle, for a period of time by something outside of his control. Kept from the holy city. Kept from the place where God had set His name. Kept from the place where God's Word was preached, where the sacrifices were offered. Kept from that place that was symbolic of the very presence of his Lord. And he would wonder when he would be able to be back in the presence of God. In verse 4, he would remember how he used to go with the throng of God's people, the great pilgrim throngs, and he would lead them in their processions on the way to Jerusalem, to the temple, the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise and and all of the festival being kept by this multitude of people who loved God. He thought back on that with nostalgia. Those were the good days when my soul was satisfied, when I was in the midst of God's people and there was a great communion that we had together and a communion with the Lord and we came into His temple and we came to His house and there was great feasting and rejoicing. And I know that there, for a Christian, are times when we can remember, we can remember when our communion with the Lord was sweet and when it was good and we look back with aching hearts, longing for that again. Because in the moment, our hearts and our souls are downcast. You know what it's like to be kept away from the all-satisfying presence of God. Maybe you know what it's like to come to church and to sit in the pew, 
but for some reason, for a time, you still walk away cold. Maybe you know what it's like to pick up the Bible and read it in the morning, just like you are in habit, the habit of doing, but you find it just like a closed book for a while. It's like your heart is impenetrable almost. Just words on a page. Or maybe you've known what it's like to get on your knees to pray and to feel as if the heavens are made of brass and God is anywhere but there hearing your prayer, communing with you. You strain your eyes, longing to see Him, but the vision of Him seems so blurry, so distant, and maybe you even begin to entertain doubts of whether it's even reality. Giant despair beats you down. And your enemies stand between you and the tabernacle barring you from the presence of God so that you cannot draw near to your Lord. Master self-love looms up large in front of you. The prince of this world sets his army in array against you. The messenger of Satan has been sent to buffet your body. My soul is cast down within me, he says, verse 6. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan. That's off to the east of the temple. And of Hermon up in the north and Mount Mizar, wherever that is. But in other words, the psalmist is writing this as someone who's far away geographically from the place where God's presence is. From the place of His provision of salvation from the place where his word echoes out among his people he's he's far from that he's distant from that and and i you know while while it was perhaps a physical distance i'm sure that it was a spiritual distance and that we can all relate to When shall I come, he says. When will the day come when I may come again into the presence of God? And there's another question posed in verse 3. And, uh, and you can kind of see it again down in verse 10. This question in verse 10 is on the lips of his enemies. When you're in a moment like this, it seems like the enemies are saying, where is your God? It looks like your God's abandoned you. He's not hearing your prayers. You you say you believe in Him, and where is He? It's not enough to be kept from God's presence. God, God is supposed to be everywhere, right? But now, where is where is God? Here, here I am. I'm, I'm far from the temple. Where is my Lord who is supposed to be with me everywhere I go when I'm overcome by my troubles and perplexed by my enemies? Where is your God? Where is God? When you're standing before the 
accuser of the brethren with fresh failures on your hands and you hear him say, where is your God? Where is your God now? You've messed up one too many times. He has finally abandoned you. Prayer will do you no good. Don't bother with those scriptures. You're beyond hope. Troubles taunt the people of God. Distresses deride them. Scarcity sneers. And illness insults. And like the mockers around the cross, countless voices rise up to cry out into the ears of our soul. He trusted in God. Let Him save Him now, if He will have Him. And my soul says, where is your God? Where is your God? And, you know, I think we know that we ought to persevere through the trials and the temptations. And so we set our minds to hope in the Lord no matter what. And it is, it is um, something that we find that we can do for a period of time. As long as those thoughts only come every now and then, we can manage. But notice in verse 3, that this question is posed, these questions are posed how often? Day and night, all day long, they say, where is your God? Continually. The psalmist is experiencing what seems to be a trial of prolonged antagonism that would wear any of us down. And in this prolonged period, his Lord seems to be missing in his trials, in his circumstances. And some of you have had times like that. When it's like the Lord has withdrawn the smile of his face, the light of his countenance, the sense of his presence, the enjoyment of his salvation for a period of time. And he's allowed you to go on in affliction, in trouble, in a dry time when your soul is thirsty, and you say, Lord, how long? How long? If you don't come, I will be without hope. He seems in those times to be deaf to our pleas, as if He has abandoned us, as if He has stopped listening to our prayers. And the longer that goes on, of course, the more our souls are in danger of becoming downcast and in turmoil within us. We like the bride in the Song of Songs whose husband is separated from her for a time and she says, I sought him but found him not. I called him but he gave no answer. If you find my beloved, tell him I am sick. I am sick with love. And we can be soul sick sometimes sick with missing communion with our God, sick from being isolated from His loving care, His favor, His kindness, the sense of joy in communion with Him. 
to the point where that sin sickness can threaten to be fatal almost, where we are tempted to give up hope altogether. We are surrounded on every side, pounded, hammered by the afflictions and the trials and the temptations of life. Verse 7, the imagery is uh, just very picturesque there, being overwhelmed by unruly waters, right? Verse 7, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. Have you ever been at the foot of a really massive waterfall right down at the bottom? You hear that great mass of water crashing against the rocks and and it, you don't realize how loud it is until you get right up there. And it's as if his whole life is just this cacophony of, uh, of circumstances and difficulties and trials and temptations and being overwhelmed and he cannot hear the voice of God. His soul is just so noisy. He cannot hear the Lord speak to him. Or like verse 7, also like one who's swimming in an unruly sea churned up by the storms of life. All of your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Picture someone swimming, trying to just barely keep his head above water and every time he can barely get a breath, another breaker crashes over his head and like the breakers coming again and the rising of the tide, these troubles are just so overwhelmingly relentless that he feels that he will be lost in this sea of despair. This is what happens when we listen to our souls in the times that are being described here, when God seems far away when our prayers don't seem to be answered, when we seem to be abandoned to our own devices. Our souls tell us, your God has left you. Where is He? How long will you go on? When will you ever come back into His presence? But far from listening to His soul, the writer of this psalm speaks to His soul. Verses 11, verse 5, excuse me, verse 11 Verse 43, he says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Gets his soul in his own hands and he speaks to his soul. I've quoted before Lloyd-Jones' comment on this. I just always have found it so helpful. He says, I suggest that the main trouble in the whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourself. He says, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that you have in the moment when you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you and they bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Who's talking to you? Uh, or yourself is talking to you. Now, the psalmist's treatment is this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? He asks. 
His soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and he says, Self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Why are you cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? And what God is, and, and, and then you must go on, he says, to remind yourself of, of God, who He is, and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged Himself to do. And then having done that, end on this great note. Defy yourself, and defy other people, and defy the devil and the whole world, and say with this man, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. There are times in those moments when we have to speak God's truths to our souls. We have to get our souls by the lapels, as it were, and say, Soul, remember who your God is. Soul, remember what your God has done. Soul, remember what your God has promised to do. A few weeks ago, I maybe a couple months ago, I started memorizing um, Lamentations 3. And my thought was to get to those sweet verses in 21, 22, 23. But, you know, you've got 20 verses of lamentation, exactly. And they are. And the writer speaks of being abandoned by God, suffering under the judgment of God, the righteous judgment. God sort of walling him up in a city, surrounding him with his enemies. He tries to send out prayers for help and God shuts the paths so none of his prayers can escape. God stands outside the city like a roaring bear or a lion ready to devour him. It's just, I mean, it's on and on. He just... He, he's, he's in in despair, really. His soul is disquieted within him. There's 20 verses of that. You're just memorizing one after another, after another, after another. And then you finally get to this. Verse 21, But this I call to mind. And I just, I stopped there. This I what? This I call to mind. And therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. And on he goes. But what is it that's the key? To me, in that moment, these are the words that jumped off the page. This I call to mind. And that's not just merely that he remembered. He happened to remember in that moment that God's mercies, His steadfast love never ceases and His mercies never come to an end, is that He intentionally, deliberately set His mind on the truth that He knows about God. In fact, the the Greek translation of that uses a word that describes intentionally setting something up or, or organizing something in your soul, in your heart, in your mind. Setting my soul upon this. And that's what's going on in this uh, psalm as well, right? In Psalm 42. He says, I, I'm going to speak to my soul. I've got to speak to my heart. Lest I lose all hope and just abandon the Lord. I need to speak to my soul. Maybe you need to do that today. Just get a hold of your heart and say, 
soul, remember your God. And then he says in verse 5, hope in God. He tells himself, hope in God. For I shall, what? For I shall yet, or again, praise Him, my salvation and my God. Here is the counsel that we must give our souls in those moments. I will again praise Him. Amen? I will again come into His courts with praise. He will yet, He will yet revive me, forgive me, rescue me. He will not cast me off forever. He cannot bear to stay away long to see His loved ones hurting forever. That day is coming and I must believe it. That I must live by faith and by hope in this grace that He has promised, that He assures me of for all those who commit their their souls to Him. This is grace that runs from beginning to end. It never ceases. This is grace that is persistent and relentless and pursuing and tenacious. That's what I'm going to hope in. That's the way God is. That is the way God is. Amen? Toward His own. He is relentless. He is pursuing. He is persistent. He is tenacious. And because He is that way, I will hope in Him. I will yet praise Him. In fact, verse 8 could also be translated future tense, and many versions do this. By day the Lord will command His steadfast love. At night His song will be with me. He will. He will come to me. This battle against despondency is the battle to believe in the promise of future grace from God. As Psalm verse chapter 30, verse 5 says, His anger is but for a moment. And His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Lamentations 3, that beautiful passage, The Lord will not cast off forever, but though He cause grief, He will have compassion. Though He cause grief, He will have compassion according to, according to what? The abundance of His steadfast love. Because that's who He is. That's the way He is towards His people. He does not afflict them from His heart or grieve the children of man. I just love that. The Lord is not afflicting His people from His heart. His means, His intent is not ultimately affliction. It is ultimately their good. And this is what gives hope. Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 16. The righteous falls seven times, but what? Rises again. Second Corinthians chapter 4, Paul said, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, yes, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Now, how can we say this with such confidence? How, I mean, really, how can we say we are confident that the Lord will not abandon us? Because there are some people whom the Lord does abandon. Right? There are some people whose prayers He will not hear. So how can the psalmist speak with this confidence 
that the Lord will hear, the Lord will answer. And I think to a great degree, you can find that answer in a lot of places, but one of the most beautiful ways to answer it is in Psalm 15. Listen to this. The Lord, excuse me, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? That's the whole question in Psalm 42, right? How, when can I come again into the tent of meeting with God's people, into the tabernacle, into the holy place? When can I come into the presence of God? Psalm 15 asks, who shall dwell in your, so sojourn in your tent? Who will dwell on your holy hill? And here's the answer. Now you want to know who it is? Here it is. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, who nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who, honor, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and yet does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. Now, who is that person? Yeah, amen, right? It is Christ and Christ alone. I mean, in a, in a secondary sense, it is all who are united to Him, but not, not in any ultimate way can any of us say that. Who is the one who is never going to be denied access to the presence of God, in whose presence there is always fullness of joy? Who will always have access into that place? It is the one whose soul was perfect. The one whom this psalm and every psalm points to. The one who, in spite of his perfect obedience, pleasing the Father in every way, who said, my soul is greatly troubled even to death. That's the one. The one who said, my God, my God, why have you, what? Forsaken me. The one who knew uh, something of this psalm and yet who with his dying breath said, Father, into your hands I commit my soul, I commit my spirit. This is ultimate perseverance in the face of apparent abandonment. And three days later, three days later, his faith was vindicated. And he was raised and lifted up on high where he is seated in victory and glory. And, and in, in chapter 43, look, right in the very next verse, you, you see almost a, a foretaste of this or a foreshadowing. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against the ungodly people. And the Lord did vindicate him. He did vindicate the one who was in every way perfectly uh, right to have access to the Father, but whose soul was abandoned by God. He was nevertheless raised and declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. And with Him and in Him we can have absolute assurance that God's mercies to us are new every morning. That He will not utterly abandon us that we will yet again praise Him. So, we can say, 
with the kind of confidence of the prophet Isaiah and Hosea, excuse me, Hosea and Hosea chapter six. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. And it is. His, his grace, His restoration, His healing, His strengthening is as sure as the sun coming up in the sky. Romans chapter 8, verse 38. You know these verses well. What a blessing they are to those who are in Christ. He says, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The battle against despondency is the battle to believe these promises of God to hold on to the promises of God in Christ Jesus. To hold on to the hope that we will yet again praise Him. We persevere in faith, in the promises, the character, the goodness of God. Those promises are a precious key to deliver our souls in our times of being downcast. Uh, Pilgrim's Progress is where that title comes from, that chapter I talked about in Spurgeon's biography, Giant Despair. There's a giant who blocks the Christian on his path to the heavenly city, and he captures Christian at one point for a period of time, locks him in the castle of despair. And while he is there in doubting castle, he and hopeful they are kept locked in a dungeon for three days. And on the first day, a Thursday, they are beaten mercilessly. And then on Friday, they're told to just kill themselves. There's no hope for you. And then on Saturday, they, uh, the, the, the giant becomes angry and he shows them the bones of others that he's killed and, they've, and, and he beats them. And at midnight on that third night, uh, the, the, before that third day, rather, on, on that Saturday night, they begin to pray. And at midnight, early Sunday morning, Christian thinks to himself, what a fool I've been, where he reaches his hand into his cloak and he pulls out a key. And that key was given to him to unlock any door that might stand in his way to block him from reaching the heavenly city. And that key... Bunyan said is called promise. And it is those who hold on to the promises of God. To hold on to the precious promises that flow from His gracious character. Those are the people who can say, why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God. For I will yet praise Him. May God give you and me, the hope to live by faith in the promises of His grace.
Heavenly Father, thank you for this word, and I trust that it will find a home in the hearts of those for whom you intended it today. Thank you for speaking it to us. Let it now continue to have its good effect in us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.